Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Call in at 515-602-9655. If you would like a copy of today's show notes, you can email me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K. And the four persons is the, the number four, persons. So let's get started here. The Bible is the collection of books the Catholic Church decided could be read at Mass. It is a collection of books written with different writing styles over thousands of years by different authors for different audiences. The English word Bible is derived from the Koine Greek ta biblia, which means the books, and the singular version of ta biblia would be biblion. So one book of the Bible in Greek would be Biblion. The word Biblia itself had the literal meaning of scroll, and that came to be used as an ordinary word for the ordinary form of the word book. It is the diminutive form of Biblios, which means Egyptian papyrus. So you have to think about where the book, the name came from, a piece of Egyptian papyrus was called Biblios. And since the early writings were not in the page form that we are familiar with now, they were actually just rolled up versions of papyrus or uh, vellum, which would come from an animal skin. <clears throat> the we have to understand what books used to be like compared to what we have now. John Christosom appears to be the first writer to use the Greek phrase tabiblia, referring to the books. And he used this to describe both the Old and the New Testaments together. And John Christosom lived between 386 and 388 CE. Well, that's when he mentioned the writings as the Bible. So around the late 300s, that's the first time we have the use of this idea of the Old and New Testaments being called the Bible. Before that, they would be referred to as the scriptures. And Justin Martyr refers to the writings that are read at Mass as the memoirs of the apostles. The canon of scripture differs from the books that can be read at ma- the canon of scripture re- refers to the books that can be read at mass or the divine liturgy as it is known as in the eastern churches many bibles contain writings pictures and charts that are not suitable for reading at mass it is important to remember that not everything in the library of the bible is what we call scripture The Bible is not a manual on how to run a religion or build a church. Those things already existed before the Bible was assembled. The Didache is the earliest manual on how to run a church. In modern times, the Catholic Church is governed by canon law and the catechism, which are all based on scripture. The church has the authority that Jesus left it uh, 
when he gave his authority to his apostles, who passed it on to their successors that we now call bishops, the cardinals, and the pope. So at the time of Jesus, the Sadducees that taught and worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem considered only the five books of Moses, that is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to be the word of God. This is because in Deuteronomy 4.2 it says, In your observance of the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I am commanding you, you shall not add to what I command you or subtract from it. So using Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it says, don't add to this. And uh, it also says that you shall not subtract from it. So the Sadducees considered the first five books of Moses as the only inspired word of God. And they were the Jewish priests that ran the temple. Now, there's another group of Jews called the Pharisees. And they were in Jerusalem, and they taught and worshipped in synagogues. And they considered the five books of Moses, the writings of the prophets, the Psalms, and some of the historical writings as scripture. Although the synagogues had the same core texts, they had different overall collections of writings. These collections of various writings were grouped into sets of 22 or 24 books. Both the Pharisees and Sadducees admitted the idea of oral tradition. Students learned the interpretation of scripture from their rabbi, who learned it from his rabbi. Different rabbis had different interpretations of scripture than then, back then, just like they have today. And you'll find this a lot in Protestantism, too, uh, in that many different Protestant churches will have different interpretations of the Bible. And in the Catholic Church, you know, the Catholic Church allows a range of interpretation for the Bible. Uh, the Catholic Church has not decided what each version, verse of the Bible means has not established an official interpretation, but church has a playing field, we can call it, um, in which you can interpret the Bible. So there's certain boundaries on interpretation, but you are allowed to read what the text says, and based on your overall knowledge of Jewish history, Christian history, and the culture throughout the ages, you can find deeper meanings in just the written word. After the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Pharisees used their unopposed influence with the Jews outside the destroyed Jerusalem to create written versions of their oral tradition called the Babylonian Talmud and the Palestinian Talmud. So the Talmud was like a record of the oral traditions that had been passed on generation to generation. And the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, so the temple was gone. The place where the Pharisees, the Sadducees had authority was gone. But the Pharisees that ran the synagogue communities both in Jerusalem and all around the Mediterranean basis, basin, they continued to have influence over the Jews of their time. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he often referred to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. When Jesus refers to the righteous Abel, to Zechariah, he's referring to the prophets from A to Z, or the Aramaic equivalent of A to Z, which would include any righteous person. Jesus also says there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist, who taught after the time of Zechariah. It is only a coincidence that this list matches the order of prophets in the Jewish scripture. In disputes with the Sadducees, who only used the five books, only to the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, 
because he knew which writings they accepted as authoritative. Jesus tailored his arguments to his immediate audience, even when he and the devil quoted scripture to one another. Now, the Jews living outside of Jerusalem, all around the Mediterranean basin, were known for resisting the adoption of the Greek social norms. They preferred they preferred and used the Greek language, but they did not embrace new interpretations and rules. They also did not adopt a blending of Judaism with Greek philosophy. The books of the Maccabees were all about Jewish resistance to the Greek influence and their ruling over the Jews. There were Greek-influenced Jewish writers who attempted to form a blend of Greek, though, or represent Jewish history with Greco-Roman uh, Greco audience in mind. The two most notable Jewish writers that did this were Philo of Alexandria and Flavius Josephus. Their writings were written after the translation of the Greek Septuagint. There is no evidence that the Greek-speaking Jews accepted either writer as representative of Orthodox Jewish thought. The Jews living outside of Jerusalem used a Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, because it was allegedly assembled and translated by 70 or 72 Hebrew scholars. The translation has the 46 books of the Catholic Old Testament in it, and various others that did not make it into the Catholic Old Testament canon. The seven books that are in the Catholic Old Testament canon, but not the Protestant Old Testament, are 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Baruch, Syria, Syriac, and Judith. The early Christians considered the Greek Septuagint version of the Hebrew writings as scripture. The New Testament quotes from the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament more than 80% of the time. All of books that made it into the New Testament were written in the first century, but some of the first century books didn't, but some of the writings from the first century didn't make it. These are the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, First Clement, and the Epistle of Barnabas. The New Testament quotes the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament because the New Testament is written in Greek, and if you want to quote the Old Testament, it's a whole lot handier to quote the Old Testament already in Greek than having to refer back to it in Hebrew or Aramaic and then translate it into Greek. So that's how we know that the New Testament writers generally used the Greek Septuagint as their, for Old Testament quotes. A good defense why Baruch belongs in the Bible is that the scroll or book of Baruch is considered inspired according to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah instructs Baruch to write down these words which the Lord has given me. And when they had heard all the words, they looked upon one another with astonishment. And they said to Baruch, we must tell the king all these words. And they asked him, saying, tell us how did you write all these words from his mouth? And Baruch said to them, with his mouth he pronounced all these words as if he were reading to me, and I wrote it in a volume with ink. And the princes said to Baruch, go and hide the, hide yourself, both you and Jeremiah, and let no man know where you are. And they went to the king into the court and laid up the volume in the chamber of Elisima, the scribe, and they told all the words in the hearing of the king. And we find that in Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 16 to 20. So Jeremiah is not a disputed book. Baruch is a disputed book, and the fact that Jeremiah tells us that the book of Baruch 
which was dictated to him by God, is laid up in the chamber where they kept all the other sacred books. So this is a basic history of the Bible. So the Greek tra translation called the Septuagint was finished around 200 BC. The Greek translation contains all the books that are in the later Jewish Masoretic text or the Protestant Old Testament. It also contains the books of the Catholic and Orthodox Old Testament, including Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of the Son of, of Jesus, Son of Sirach, Baruch, the Letter of Jeremiah, which later became Chapter 6 of Baruch and the Vulgate, additions to Daniel, the Prayer of Azarias, and the Song of the Three Children, Susanna and Bell and the Dragon, and additions to Esther, the Book of Esther, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 3rd Maccabees, 4th Maccabees, the books of 3rd Maccabees and 4th Maccabees are part of the Orthodox Old Testament, but not the Catholic Old Testament. The Septuagint also contains writings that are not in the Catholic or Orthodox Old Testament, including 1, 2, and 3 Esdras, Odes, Prayer of Manasseh, the Psalms of Solomon, and Psalm 151. You might find these writings in a modern Bible or Bibles throughout the ages, but again, these are writings that are in the Bible that are not necessarily in the canon of Scripture. Um, for modern Protestants, they think everything that's in the Bible is also in the canon. But because the Bible is a library, it can contain other writings besides what is canonical Scripture. It's an important distinction to keep in mind. About 100 years before Christ, the Jews started translating the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic for use during their worship services. Some of this was written down, and the collection became known as the Targum. So the Targum is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And Aramaic was the common Jew language that the Jews used at the time of Jesus. Uh, some of the quotes in the New Testament are, of Jesus are in Aramaic. 80 AD, the Pharisees in a city called Jamnia, which was outside of Jerusalem, met to discuss whether the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes should be considered scripture. They decided that they are. Jamnia, also called Jebna or Jebneu, was the site of the famous school and seat of Jewish scholarship. The Sanhedrin relocated there after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the city took place, the place of Jerusalem as far as religious ob observations go. There's no specific reference to a council of Jamnia. However, its position as the heart of the Palestinian Jewish scholarship from approximately 70 to 150 AD time period, may be why it is credited for significant developments in Judaism at this period. At Jamnia, Rabbi Akiba and his pupil Rabbi Aquila were the creators of a rabbinical Bible, which was designed to become the common property of all Jews. This was a Judaized version of the scriptures. They excluded writings with Christian and Hellenistic, that is, Greek, influences. Akiba is one of the greatest rabbis due to his systemization of the halakha. Halakha refers to the religious practices of the Jews and the written codex of it. The Mishnah, which is the oral tradition, and the Midrash, which is commentary on the Mishnah. There is no evidence that he was ever based in Jamnia, but obviously with, had interaction with the scholars there. 
Akiba edited the forms of the Septuagint at the time, and his edited version of what called the Old Testament can be called the basis for the latest, later Masoretic text. Around 100 AD, a Jewish historian named Josephus Flavius wrote in his work against Appian that there are three groups of writings that total up to 22 books. This canon may be very close to the 24 books of the later Masoretic text. You have to understand that uh, our current Catholic Old Testament of 46 books or the Protestant 39 books are just a regrouping of the 22 or 24 book canon of the Masoretic text. The, Aram, the Hebrew alphabet has like 22 letters in it and they tried to group the books into a group that would fit with the number of letters in the alphabet for easier reference, I guess. In 115 AD, Polycarp wrote a cover letter for the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch to the church that he was copying for the church in Philippi. In his letter, he quotes from almost all of the books that later became the New Testament and some of the Old Testament including the Deuterocanonical book. He refers to uh, a passage in Tobit chapter 4. And Polycarp is important because he was the successor bishop to John in his area, the Apostle John. And the fact that he quotes from most of the New Testament books lets us know that, yes, they were available at that time. And the fact that he quotes from a Deuterocanonical book, Tobit, also lets us know that it was considered scripture at his time. In 136 AD, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Jews declared that the seven Deuterocanonical books were not to be considered scripture because they were used by the Nazarenes. The Jews called the early Christians Nazarenes because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. By 140 AD, the Jews who had rejected Jesus and Christianity had settled on a list of 24 books as their scripture. These 24 books are roughly equal to the 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament. Most copies had vowel points to go with the consonant letters of the text. Different rabbis use different vowel points, so there are variations in the text. Again, this is another important point that people have to understand about the Jewish scriptures. It only contained the consonant letters and not what we call vowels these days. And the rabbis would teach their students which vowels go with the consonant letters that are in the scrolls. And later on, to make it more clear to everybody, they started adding little dots by the consonant letters that were referred to as vowel points. But because these are just little dots of ink, they could fade away uh, or you might miss them and you might use the wrong vowel. It's important to note that the Jewish scriptures here only had consonant letters and not the normal words that we would expect to see in a modern book. And you can kind of see this in our modern times in some people when they're texting, they'll leave out the vowel vowels because everybody knows which vowels goes with those consonants. <laughs> so we're kind of going back to a old version of writing, uh, but it can easily become unclear to other readers at different times. In 144 AD, a guy named Marcion, who was the son of the Bishop of Sinope, proposed a list of books that should be considered scripture. Marcion's teachings 
were rejected by other Catholic Christian bishops for many reasons, including his teaching that there are two gods, the God of the mean God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament. Marcion's canon of scripture didn't include the Old Testament scriptures of the bad God, but it contained the gospel according to Luke, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, which Marcion referred to as the letter to the Laodiceans, Colossians, and Philemon, and Philippians. So here's a guy in 144 AD, about 50 years after all of the New Testament writings were completed, that made a shortened version of what he considered the New Testament. And he made this decision on his own, uh, thinking that he was wise enough to do it but it was generally rejected by all the other Catholic Christian bishops of his time. In 150 AD, Justin Martyr describes the liturgy of the early Christians. He writes that the first writings of the prophets are read and then the memoirs of the apostles called the Gospels. At this time, the four Gospels were being widely read among all the apostolic letters but not necessarily considered the same as scripture. So in 150 AD, this guy, Justin Martyr, is describing what the Christians do at their worship service. And he writes that we read the writings from the prophets, the Old Testament, and we read the writings called the memoirs of the apostles that are called gospels. And in our modern Catholic Church, we get writings from the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Gospels. In many Protestant churches, you'll just get you know, a few verse, verses out of a chapter of either the Old or New Testament, and then the preacher will explain those few verses for the rest of the sermon. The oldest list of the New Testament is on an incomplete scrap of parchment known as the Muratorian Fragment, and it was written around 170 AD. It lists the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Book of Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Romans, Philemon, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Jude, 1st and 2nd John, Wisdom of Solomon, the Revelation of John, and the Revelation of Peter as Scripture. So this is similar to our current New Testament, but not exactly the same. In 180 AD, Irenaeus, lists that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And later in 185 AD, he lists 21 books of what would later become the New Testament canon of Scripture. And that's 21 of the 27 books that we currently have in our New Testament canon. 200 AD, Origen, an early Christian writer, considered the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the 14 letters of Paul, 1 Peter, Jude, 1 John, and the book of Revelation as scripture. Origen expressed reservations concerning the book of James, 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John. And Origen also considered the gospel of Peter, the gospel of the Hebrews, Acts of Paul, 1 Clement, Epistle of Barnabas, Didache, and Shepherd of Hermas as divinely inspired. Origen denies the authenticity of these writings, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Twelve, Gospels of Basilides, Gospel of the Egyptians, Gospel of Matthias, and the preaching of Peter. 
So here we have around 200 AD, a guy writing about what is the canon of scripture, and it's not what we have today. So the idea that everybody had the same New Testament canon of scripture from the beginning well, from the beginning of Christianity or the end of the first century is obviously not true. Around 315 AD, Eusebius of Caesarea wrote about the canon of scripture based on what he learned from Origen's library and the libraries of in Alexandria and Jerusalem. He wrote that the universally recognized books are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Book of Acts, Epistles of Paul, including Hebrews, the First Epistle of Peter, the First Epistle of John, and the Revelation or Apocalypse of John. Eusebius writes that these are the disputed writings, accepted by some churches, but not all churches. The second epistle of Peter, the second and third epistles of John, the books of James and Jude, and he also writes that the church in Rome rejects the book of Hebrews, and many churches read the shepherd of Hermas during the divine liturgy. Eusebius writes that these books are non-apostolic writings, but useful for teaching. The Acts of Paul, Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, or Teaching of twelve, the Twelve Apostles, of the Hebrews, the Apocalypse of John. Eusebius writes that these writings are heretical. The Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Matthias, Acts of Andrew, Acts of John. And from this we learn that the New Testament canon is still not universally established in all the churches. So even by 315 AD, there's no standard canon of scripture yet. Around 325 AD, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, and the Codex Alexandria were assembled. A codex is what we would now refer to as a book, scrolls, and roll them out and then cut them off and make them into pages. And these are likely from the 50 copies of scripture commissioned by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Between these ancient books, we have the fully accepted 66 books of the Old Testament, the books of the Deuterocanon, also known as the Apocrypha, including Third Esdras. We also have Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, the Prologue to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, Esther, with the additions, the longer version, Judith, Tobit, Baruch, Epistle of Jeremiah, Daniel, with the additions, so it's a slightly longer version of the book of Daniel, and 1 through 4, Maccabees. These books also contain the New Testament four Gospels, the book of Acts, First and Second Peter, First, Second and Third John, Jude, James, the Epistle to the Hebrews, the 13 other Pauline epistles, and including 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The book of Revelation is missing, but the missing books were added to the Codex Vaticanus in the 1400s. So we have to understand that because these are ancient books and were not always given the most ideal care, sometimes pages would get lost, so they would be added on. But we know that through the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandria that these books were around. So that's why you have to think about the three books together so that between the three books you can get our whole modern Bible 
because three different ancient books have been damaged over the years, but together they make up what we now call the whole Bible. The Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest book form of the Bible we have. Some of it is missing, and parts of it are in four libraries around the world, so you can still see it today. The Codex Vaticanus is, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Some of it, yeah, it contains most of the Old Testament in Greek, the Deuterocanonical books, the New Testament, and the writings Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas. The letters are all capital letters, and all the letters are next to each other. In our modern English Bibles, we're used to punctuation in between the words and capital and small letters to let you know which words are important and where the sentence starts and things like that. These old books just have all the letters bunched up together, and you have to recognize and know the old Greek words to pull them out. So it's kind of like doing a word search where you find you see a bunch of letters, but you have to recognize the pattern of which groups of letters make a word. And at the time these were written, people understood them because the teacher would teach you which groups of letters go together to make a word. They weren't designed for an audience, you know, 2,000 years later. They were designed for the audience of their time. And teachers taught their students how to read the Bible. The Codex Vaticanus is likely a Greek copy of the Bible that was made at the same time as the Codex Sinaiticus. It has been in the Vatican Library since the 1400s. It contains most of the Greek Old Testament, except 1 through 4 Maccabees. Most of the New Testament has survived, but 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and the Book of Revelation are missing. Over the centuries, the missing books were added in, and some of the faded writing has been written over. This makes some people think that the text is somewhat unreliable. The Codex Vaticanus has the 27 books of the New Testament in an order starting with the four Gospels, Catholic epistles of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude, the 14 Pauline epistles, including Hebrews, between 2nd Thessalonians and 1st Timothy, and John's book of Revelation. Some people refer to the a early Bible known as the Vedas Latina Bible. The Vedas Latina Bible is also known as the Old Latin Bible or the but the Vedas Latina is a collection of biblical manuscripts that are in Latin translations of the Septuagint. And the New Testament passages, they also include the New Testament books that preceded Jerome's Vulgate. So you can think of the Vedas Latina as an early version of the Bible because it's a collection of the books of the Old and New Testament that are written in a form of Latin predates the Latin Vulgate. And this the form of Latin that they're written in is actually a late version of Latin that was used in the Roman Empire. So even though it's kind of known as the Old Latin Bible, it's actually a later version of Latin, but because it predates the Latin Vulgate, it's referred to as the Old Latin. It's important to understand how names are come about 
so that when you're reading Old Latin, you don't think it's an earlier version of Latin. It's just a different version of Latin that was available in the late 300s. The oldest fragments we have of this Vedas Latina Bible are from around 350 AD. There are many variations in the text of the Old Latin Bible, so it does not serve as a good standard text. Around 350 AD, Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem taught this canon of scripture in his lectures to his catechumens coming into the Catholic Church at that time. Cyril taught that the Septuagint was written by 70 Jewish scholars, but only had accepted the 22 books of the Hebrew canon of scripture used in Jerusalem at that time, which is comparable to the current 39 books or the, of the shorter canon of the Old Testament scriptures. Cyril taught that people should only read the books that are read openly in church. Cyril recognized the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts of the Apostles, the seven Catholic epistles of James, Peter, two of those, and the three of John and Jude, and the 14 epistles of Paul but he does not include the book of Revelation by John. In 360 AD, the Council of Laodicea listed a canon of scripture that had 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament. They left off the book of Revelation. Also, in 367 AD, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria listed the 27 books of the New Testament in his Easter letter sent to his churches. Athanasius' letter established the New Testament canon of scripture for the churches in his bishopric, the area that he was a bishop. He made this list to confirm that 2 Peter and Revelation were part of scripture list, and to establish that the shepherd of Hermas and the epistle of Barnabas were not scriptures because they had been held in the same regard as the other apostolic letters for many years. The list of canonical scripture that he wrote followed the order of scripture in the Codex Vaticanus. Athanasius did not allow new students at the catechetical school in Alexandria to, de to study the Didache and Shepherd of Hermas, as well as the deuterocanonical books of Wisdom, Wisdom of Sirach, Esther, Judith and Tobit, but he did say that they could be read for instruction and in piety. So here we have in 367 AD, finally a bishop, you know, giving us a list of canonical books that we have in our New Testament. One of the things he's doing also is establishing that these, the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas that were being read in churches at that time are not to be read in churches. So obviously the canon of scripture was still not fully established universally in 367 AD. In 382 AD, Pope Damasus at the Council of Rome listed the 27 books of the New Testament and the 46 books of the Old Testament as we have them today. In 383, well, also, Pope, this list of canon of scripture was sent around to all the other churches around the Mediterranean for use by other churches and bishops to establish a canon of scripture. So here we have in 382 AD, finally, a canon of scripture that matches what we have today which shows, again, that the idea that the Christians had a full and complete Bible by the end of the first century is not really true. In 383 AD, Pope Damasus commissioned St. Jerome to make a Latin translation of the New and Old Testament scriptures. Jerome knew the Hebrew Masoretic texts Jerome used the Hebrew Masoretic text for his Old Testament translation and Greek writings for the New Testament translation. 
The Masoretic texts didn't include the Deuterocanonical books because the Jews that he got them from had rejected the Deuterocanonical books. Jerome made a Latin translation of these books after they were confirmed by the councils of Hippo and Carthage. St. Jerome, who freely shared his opinions, obeyed the church's directive and eventually admitted that the church's ruling determined what would be considered scripture. Protestants often overlook his withdrawing of his initial opinion. So when Jerome made his translation known as the Latin Vulgate, he didn't include the seven books of the Old Testament that we now have in our Catholic Bibles. And it was because the Greek, the Hebrew texts that he got there in Jerusalem were from Jews that had already rejected them. In 385 AD, Gregory of Nazianzus wrote a poem to help remember the books of the Bible. His list, Nazianzus, there we go. Gregory of Nazianzus. His list contained the 22 books of the Jewish Old Testament and the 26 books of the Christian New Testament. Gregory's list did not include the book of Revelation as scripture. This list was updated and ratified by the Trullian Synod in 692 AD. So uh, Gregory was a Eastern church father and when he wrote, he had rejected the book of Revelation as scripture. But it was later updated to include the book of Revelation. In 393 AD, St. Augustine at the Council of Hippo came up with the same list of 46 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. And Hippo was in North Africa across the Mediterranean from Italy. In 397 AD, the Council of Carthage, again under Augustine, came up with the same list, and after another council they sent in Carthage, they sent the list to Rome for approval. Carthage is another city in North Africa, but it's a little bit further east, or a little bit further west than the city of Hippo. So in the West, which would include like say Rome, Carthage, and Hippo, the 46 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament were pretty well established by the late 300s or early 400s. In 405 AD, Pope Innocent I listed the 27 books of the New Testament and the 46 books of the Old Testament in his Easter letter that he sent to the Bishop of Lyon in France. So to confirm which books that should be read during Mass, Pope Innocent listed the 27 books of the New Testament and 46 books of the Old Testament so that the Bishop of Lyon in France would know what could be read at Mass. Now, in the throughout the 300s, there was a Gothic translation made of the Bible called the Wolfila. The Gothic alphabet was developed to provide a written language for the Bible, and the Gothic language is still used in northern Bulgaria today. The idea that the Catholic Church always forbidden reading the Bible in anything but Latin is not true. The Throughout the 300s, there was already a vernacular or local language translation of the scriptures in use. Also in 405 AD, St. Misrop of Mashats translated the Bible into Armenian. And this is another very important point that, again, the Catholic Church allowed local language translations of the Bible from the very beginning. 
In 434 AD, Vincent of Lorenz wrote in his book, The Catholic Faith Against All Heresies. And you find this in chapter 2, verse 5. But here some perhaps will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with the authority of the Church's interpretation? Because all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but no one understands its words in one way. Sorry, but one understands its words in one way and another in another way, so that it seems to be capable of many interpretations as there are interpreters. Therefore, the rule of the right understanding of the prophets and the apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard ecclesiastical and Catholic inter interpretations. So here we have in 434 AD somebody writing about how Different people interpret the Bible in different ways. And we see that all the different Protestant churches today, and that there's many different versions of Protestantism because different people interpret the Bible in different ways. And to the point that some people will separate over those different interpretations. St. Vincent here gives us the reason that we still have the church because the church is the authoritative interpreter of the Bible because Jesus left his authority with the church, not the Bible that the church later assembled. So we're going to end the show, this part of the show here today. Uh, and I have a whole lot more material on how the Bible came to us throughout the centuries beyond the 400s next time. So thanks for tuning in today. Again, if you have any questions, you can email me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook, and I'll be glad to answer questions there. And you can send me a friend request. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. And always remember that we will be held accountable for what we did with the knowledge that God gave us. May God bless and guide your efforts. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye for now.